I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Honey and Co. The Food Sessions. I'm Ita Masrulovic. And I'm Sarit Thacker. Our guest today is a journalist and a food writer, and we've spoken to her about her previous book, Samarkand and Black Sea. Her latest book is Red Sands, Reportage and Recipes to Central Asia, from Hinterland to Heartland. It came out in 2020 and won all the award. Financial Times Book of the Year, The Sunday Times, The New Yorker, that's just a few. And it's a continuation of her journey. We are thrilled to tag along. A very big welcome to Caroline Eden. Thank you both for such a generous and lovely introduction. We can do this all day. We can do this all day. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be back on. It's really a great pleasure. You're obviously very, very focused on Central Asia. So if you can tell people briefly how you came to be interested in that part of the world. Goodness, Central Asia, it all started back in 2009. I went off on a solo journey just to see it because I'd been working on guidebooks, which are all about Central Asia. And I'd worked on a 900 page guidebook to Tajikistan, which is a very small country, incredibly mountainous, about 93, 95% mountain. And I thought, if we can dedicate 900 pages to this small country, it must be pretty interesting. I think I should go. So I was like, okay, I'll fly into the capital of Tajikistan, do a bit of trekking in the high Pamirs, come back down and go overland to Samarkand. So that's what I did. And to be honest, I did bite off a bit more than I could chew at that point. I was solo. I only had a very tiny smattering of Russian. My Russian's still not great now. And it was pretty wild. It was a great adventure. And I came back and I did a little story for The National, which is a newspaper in Abu Dhabi. And then I did a little story for The Times in London. And then I thought, oh, maybe I can do this. And maybe I can make Central Asia my focus because not very many people at that time were writing about Central Asia as a place to visit. So you'd see tour buses pulling up to Samarkand and it was mainly French people who were very appreciative of the great architecture of the fabrics. Less so the food perhaps at that stage, <laughs> but it's an addictive region. And once I'd done that trip... I just kept going back and I met my husband a few years later and he also works in the region. And ever since then, we just, during normal times, we visit a lot. And I was lucky enough to be there for a couple of months last year, sadly not this year. Your focus kind of switched a bit to food of the region, not just, I mean, the book has a lot of everything. It has a lot of stories and a lot of stuff, but it is 
focused around mm. the food. So when did the switch to the food aspect of it happen? Yeah, I mean, all of my books are very heavily swayed towards food and Samarkand, which came out in 2016, I'd been thinking about that book for quite some time. I was a bookseller for many years in London and I knew the market a bit. And I thought a great way for me to write the wrong that is in all these guidebooks that says, you know, food is a bit sort of survival food when you're traveling out there. And, you know, you've got to eat shashlik and you might get some plov, but, you know, it's really hard going for vegetarians. And I just thought this isn't true, really, because I'd been staying in quite a lot of homestays and with families and visiting markets because I don't eat an awful lot of meat. I just thought there's a lot to be said about the food and through food, I can tell stories. I can start opening up this region. So that was how it began. It's fantastic. It was a fantastic book in approaching an area that really so few people know anything about. And I think that's where conveying a feeling of a place through the food and through the images, everything about it just takes you on a journey. And I think, especially after this year, or the year and a half that we've just been through, a, a book that takes you on a journey is exactly what we all need. And definitely Red Sands is taking us on a whole other journey and getting us deeper, I suppose, into a region. Can you tell us a bit about what is covered in Red Sands? I wanted to test the water with Samarkand. And it's quite a traditional cookbook, although it does have stories woven through it. And then Red Sands is really the book that I always wanted to do. I just got fully stuck in and covered everything that I find interesting in the region based on 10 years of traveling and really showing the sort of tapestry of Central Asia through food and showing how food is never just food, how it's it's everything. It's a social truth. It's a joy. It's disgust. It's digestion. It's power. And in this book, I'm in the book. I'm telling the story. But what I try and do is stand back a bit. And the stars of the book are the cooks. They're the poets. They're the entrepreneurs, the historians, the gardeners, the fishermen of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. So obviously there are five republics in Central Asia. There's also Turkmenistan. I don't cover that country, sadly, in the book, because when I travel, I tend to go for many months and I go quite slowly because I do other work when I'm on the road as well. So I'm also doing some reporting. And Turkmenistan is problematic because of the leadership, basically, and reporting freely there is extremely problematic. And you kind of need a guide outside of the capital, Ashgabat. So one day I'd love to go, but I think there'll need to be a change in power in order for that to happen and for me to be able to get the most out of going there because it's fascinating but it's very difficult. So yeah, those are the four countries we cover in Red Sands, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. And they're all relatively easy to travel around? I, no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it depends what you class as easy. So Uzbekistan's by far the easiest. It's got some very good Spanish-made high-speed trains in place now. You can get around quite comfortably. The tourism infrastructure is getting better after the death of Islam Karimov, the former president. That was really a police state and a dictatorship. And I used to travel there then and it was really difficult. You'd get hassled at borders. You didn't feel particularly welcome. And it was really frustrating because the people are incredibly welcoming, but the border guards and the secret police and those sort of people did not really want outside visitors wafting around, not independently anyway. So until 2016, it was quite difficult. Now they roll the red carpet out for you at borders. Literally, they're just so keen for tourism to come in because they've got so much to offer. Architecture, amazing markets, amazing fruit. So Uzbekistan's pretty easy. Kyrgyzstan's great if you like walking and trekking. They've got a very good homestay network around the country. 
the roads are a lot rougher and you're going to be in sort of shared taxes or private taxes. Tajikistan's hard. The roads are very, very mountainous, very rough. Amazing walking, amazing mountains, but you've got to be up for it. And Kazakhstan's probably somewhere in between. It's ginormous. It's the ninth biggest country in the world, but they've got a pretty good train network. It just takes you a long time to get anywhere. So that's the sort of practicalities of moving around. So I spent six months just on the ground for Red Sands. I was going back to places I already knew a lot of the time, but I was going there very much with this book in mind. And it's a real tapestry. So it's a real mix of culture. You have, you know, the Central Asian and it's Muslim and it's Soviet. It's all in there. There's such a, you know, it is kind of like the heart of the world. There's almost everything there. I mean, it was the heart of the Silk Road. So it's always been a very, very vital place. And with the advance of the Taliban pushing towards the borders of Central Asia, you can see it's in such an important and strategic geopolitical region. It's on the Caspian Sea, which has got a lot of oil. These are areas with a lot of gas reserves. So, yeah, it's an important part of the world that still, frustratingly, gets very little newspaper coverage. So, yeah. you know, it's why the Chinese are building the Belt and Road Initiative through Xinjiang, through Central Asia. And it's why Russia's still fully invested in the region and why you still hear Russians spoken on the streets of the major cities, because all the remittance workers go and work in Russia and send money back. And that's sometimes half the GDP in countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. So you can't escape all of this stuff. Travel writing, it's such an open-ended genre. You can talk about anything. That's the great yeah. thing about it. And I use the recipes as a means to give a backstory and to sort of dramatize the story sometimes yeah. as well and to keep it moving along. I mean, talking of that, I kind of want to get down to the yeah. food. And first of all, what would be the classics kind of foods? You mentioned plov before, but tell people what plov is, because maybe not everyone is from, yeah. <laughs> from Central Asia knows what plov Gl is. Glorious plov. Most people like it that try it. It's a rice dish fundamentally, and it's cooked in layers. So you've got lovely, oily carrots and onions at the bottom of a giant kazam, which is like a huge cooking not like a wok, it's a lot thicker, but then the rice goes on, very lightly spiced, just a little bit of cumin normally, maybe a tiny bit of paprika, and then beef or lamb, and it's cooked for slowly for a very long time, and then it's sort of served in reverse, so it's sort of flipped over and served, and everybody shares it from a single plate on the table. It's typically eaten for lunch. It is quite oily, but I really like that, and these are countries that it's very cold in the winter, so people want that sort of filling food. But it's a really rice sort of focused region, rice and bread. So that would be the main aspect of the cuisine? Yes, this is the star dish, certainly, of the region. And it's often got delicious things like quince on the top. It all depends on the seasons. Uh, quail's eggs and barberries. It can be quite plain. It depends uh, what plov you're eating in what region, because they all vary slightly too. For me, it kind of takes me to the whole world of like Persian food, I suppose. For, for us, like Jewish Persian food would mm. be like these kind of rices cooked and all this stuff. But they also use lots of herbs. Are any herbs used in that region? Not really? Mm. Our herbs are definitely used, but not so much in plov. Very okay. rarely in plov, actually. But what you would be served with with plov is a delicious tomato salad purple basil, which is oh. fantastic. Mm. Sometimes some pink pickled tomatoes, which are typically more with shashlik, but they might be on the table as well. And a big pot of green tea to cut through all the fat. You go to a small cafe or a restaurant, let's say in Samarkand, and there'll be a man there cooking in this giant kazan, and that's all that's on offer. He will scoop you up your plov, it'll come to the table with a salad and with tea and this fantastic bread 
the non bread, which I'm just totally obsessed with because I think it's mm. the best bread in the world. It's very oily. I always put on a lot of weight in Central Asia, and it is purely <laughs> down to the non bread because oil's in the bread and it's on the bread. But yeah, it's, it's so delicious. It's crusty on the bottom, bagely sort of texture. And when it comes out warm from the tandoor, it's just, it's the best. Nice. Yeah. But it is sort of rich, cold weather. Yeah. I mean, it's very continental. I mean, yeah. Kazakhstan in the north, it's like minus 40 in the winter. You don't get uh, non-bread so much up there, but it's such a vast region. You kind of need to understand something about the geography to understand the food, because the yeah. Fergana Valley is this really tight knot shared by three countries, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. And that's like the garden of Central Asia. And that is an amazing place for pomegranates and fruit and vegetables and they just grow everything it's so fertile but then you go up into Kazakhstan into the north you know not very much grows there it's steppe you know you'd have horses and you'd have grass and you'd have milk meat and milk this is their nomad culture so it's it's different again when I got this book I was you know first of all I was very much looking forward to it and then I sort of cleared the weekend you can really sink into it and really travel there with you very generously and and what I love and what I think you do so well is take these very big stories and you're able to make them very very personal that's what I try and do and food does that right one of the people who are photographed in there is one of my favorite people in the world really and I hope he's all right because he's quite elderly now and I haven't been able to reach him by phone Imenjon Mahmudov, who is an Uzbek elder living in Kyrgyzstan in the southern city of Osh. And this is a city which is half Kyrgyz and half Uzbek. And he makes the best plov. He's got a traditional Uzbek courtyard. So there's something called a tapchan in the corner, which is a sort of giant tea bed where he prays and sleeps in the summer and you eat during the day. And it's all carved, intricate, beautiful floral carving. And at the top, he's got his quails, which are in wooden cages, and they bounce, and he puts a little cloth over them during the day so they <laughs> sleep. And then they sing sometimes, and they give him his eggs for his plop. So this is a, it's a very atmospheric, lovely setting. The food's amazing. His grandchildren are running in and out all day. But the story with Imen John is that he used to work as a cook at the base camp of Peak Lenin. And Peak Lenin is one of the 7,000 peaks, and all the big Soviet mountaineers would go up this peak or try to go up it and scale it and he would cook them plov and so he would sit and tell me tales of these great people one of whom was in the Everest film Anatoly Bukharev and he was an incredible world famous mountaineer him and John used to feed him so he just let this slip one day when we were chatting about stuff and I was just like this is the most incredible stories and last time I was there with him he brought out a little um, pot of mustard and he said you know this gets them going up the mountain it's really really hot (laughs) I used to give them some of this mustard and then they kind of fly up the mountain Uh, so he's he's wonderful and he's incredibly kind incredibly generous and he hugs me like a daughter when I arrive and you know, he's a very observant Muslim. He prays five times a day. He's very um, generous, very gentle, very thoughtful, just a really lovely man. So it's interesting to me how you feel comfortable doing this, because <laughs> it's quite a, a big thing to step into another country, to talk to people. How, is this from the journalistic aspect? Is it just you've always had curiosity about people? Where does this passion kind of come from? Yeah, I just think, I mean, I'm quite shy, but I'm very curious. And I've always felt really comfortable in that part of the world. And I think it would be quite difficult for me to say why. I feel invested in it. And I feel 
very respectful of it and very grateful that it's sort of given me this career in a way. Between my husband and I, and he used to live in Central Asia, um, in Kazakhstan, we know a lot of people and we've got friends. So yeah, I feel more I feel more comfortable there than anywhere else, really. And I think, especially in Central Asia, where they know they're underrepresented in the West. If you say, you know, I want to write this story, you know, can I ask you a few questions? People can be really enthusiastic. I've never had anybody say no. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes it turns into a real performance. I mean, there's there's one story in the book where I go to a milk factory. This I found amazing, the museum and the milk factory in... Yeah, it's an interesting one. So it was in Karaganda in central Kazakhstan. And this is really very remote and not built up at all. It's a sort of central steppe lands. And I'd found out about this milkman of Kazakhstan, as I mentioned in the book, and his name was Yerlan Ashimov. And he's a great businessman. He's built up a business called Netige. It's a very successful milk business. And when I arrived, he put on his velvet Kazakh robe <laughs> And he told me about how sacred milk is in Kazakhstan, because historically it was all they had and it was all they needed. Sounds difficult for us, but they would take a sheep bladder, they would clean it, they would boil horse milk inside it. And when it was thickened, they dry it. That was food. And in the villages, kumis, which was the fermented mare's milk, was made by churning milk in leather bags using a wooden paddle. And that was what they had to drink. And between horse meat and this, it was enough for people to get by and survive in the steppe. And he would talk about how, you know, when their soldiers went to China and further afield, they would dry the milk for kurut, which is a very sort of salty cheese ball, effectively. And um, he said, you know, the Russians and the Christians would get caught out, but not us, because we had this knowledge. And, you know, Marco Polo wrote about it. But I mean, there's much more to say about this and I could talk about this for hours and I mustn't, but... Um... No, you must. <laughs> you must. And I, I find it fascinating because this carries through, I suppose, into the Middle East, which is the region that obviously we are interested in and in thing. And in one of our trips uh, now, one of the main kind of dishes um, is in uh, Jordan and they mm. do something quite similar where they have a fermented yogurt, I suppose, which also just becomes like this kind of rock of, yeah. I suppose, rock of dairy. And then they wow. re reconstitute it, rehydrate it, cook lamb in it. And it's a very... They say it's a bit like a drug. You get addicted to this flavor of like a kind of fermented dairy thing that's dried and then reconstituted, which when you listen to yours or, or to this story, you kind of think, oh, I don't know how much I yeah. fancy this. No, but that sounds so Central Asian to me. L lamb and fermented milk. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in Jordan, it was more in camel bladders than in... Uh, yeah, but that's, that's it, isn't it? People yeah. relying on their livestock and what they had to hand. Yeah. That's really Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. So for us, you can talk about it for hours. We find it <sighs> fascinating. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the whole yeah. aspect of tea. Tea's quite a big thing. And- tea's a really big thing. I was just speaking to some people last week about tea, actually, in Central Asia. And I was sort of saying, you know, the Brits really think they've got a handle on tea. And, you know, it's a really English thing. And of course, it isn't. But in Central Asia, tea is completely and utterly central to the table, to the culture. And there are places called chai khanas, tea houses, which used to be incredibly widespread, but some still exist and some are really fantastic to visit. There's one in Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan, called the Rahat Tea House, and it's huge, probably the height of a four-storey apartment building. It's got these big white Palladian columns, Persian-painted roof. It's one of the few Soviet buildings still to remain. I mean, that sounds very romantic and sort of like it was built years ago. It wasn't. Dushanbe became the capital in 1924 and it was built by the Soviets. And they built this fantastic tea house, mixing monumental, almost brutalist style with sort of oriental romance of sort of tea houses and this this sort of lovely painted roof and everything. So you get a very Central Asian mishmash of Soviet style brute with very pretty sort of oriental style design on the interior. And Rahat Tea House, you can sit there, you can order tea and look out onto the main drag, Rudaki Avenue, and maybe have some lagman, which is a delicious noodle soup and some bread. Oh, and that's a sort of one of the big sort of famous Chai Khanas of Central Asia. But there are also many tiny ones that you might just stumble upon. But, you know, in Central Asia, you might drink tea for two hours, you might drink tea for half a day. Uh, and yeah. Sometimes men would play cards or not gambling, but like would play games, backgammon perhaps, or normally chess would traditionally be played um, quite a lot in, in Chaikana. So really interesting places. Um, it seems to me that a lot of what you describe and what you've encountered there in the region is this kind of like almost traumatic impact of uh, Soviet culture on these cultures. And you encounter sort of the remnant of it. So you talk about the Azar Sea. Am I mm, the Aral right? Sea, yeah. The Aral Sea, sorry, which was just a huge calamity that we've not heard mm, of. Ginormous calamity. You know. uh, yeah. Yeah, but some good news as well. So I did. People, I mean, if you if you yeah. know about Central Asia, you know about the Aral Sea because it was one of the world's biggest man-made environmental disasters. So, in brief, the Soviets wanted to water their ginormous cotton fields. So Uzbekistan um, produced the cotton for the Soviet Union and they diverted the two main rivers, the Amu Darya and the Sir Darya, from the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea started to shrink really badly in the 1960s and it's never really come back. So yeah, you can't talk about Central Asia and not talk about Stalin's disastrous agricultural plans of the 1920s and the Aral Sea disaster of the 1960s, because it all shapes it. And it's not all bad either, the Soviet legacy. It was terrible. People were forced to give up their religion and they were forced into cooperatives and many terrible things happened. But nothing's ever black and white. And I've met lots of people in Tajikistan, for example, which is a terribly poor country still who go to Russia for work and everybody thinks they must have a terrible time there and lots of them do, but not all of them. I met a guy who I write about in the book who was selling roses at a metro stop just outside Moscow and he was having a great time. He was living with a couple of friends. 
His wife was there in Penjikent in um, Tajikistan, bringing up the children. And he was coming back and he was earning really good money and was very happy and very upbeat. And so it's, it's a mixture. People speak Russian still. The Russian influence is very much there still. So, yeah, it's an interesting mix. Yeah, from afar, it's very easy to see things in black and white and good and bad. But when, once you look up closer on the human level, everything is so much more layered and approachable and understandable. Mm. Like you said about the RLC, horrible moments, also a lot of comical mm. moments, like this hotel sanatorium, <laughs> which sounds just incredible. And I, I just want to go there. It sounds like a Wes Anderson. It, it, oof. Wes Anderson has nothing on, on the Hodger <laughs> or be gone. Uh, no, I mean, I don't think he'd have lost, he wouldn't last 10 minutes there. Uh <laughs> sort of horrifying and beautiful I mean I had the most amazing night there I think about it a lot it's it was opened in the 1930s um, there's a hot spring there it's just outside the capital up a mountain and it is a ginormous hundreds and hundreds of rooms Soviet built sanatorium and people would go there for the radon water, which is quite dangerous if taken in large quantities if you listen to Western science but people go there and they yeah. bathe in the radon waters. Now it's become much more of a Tajik setup. So people go there sort of to relax and be with family, but it's completely falling down this place. I mean, it's dangerous. I've visited many Soviet sanatoriums and this one had lumps of concrete having just fallen off. <laughs> I mean, just that sentence, I've visited loads of Soviet <laughs> sanatoriums and then chunks of it falling off. It's just crazy. <laughs> this this one is the ultimate in kind of um, Soviet dereliction as far as the sanatoriums go. But so I said, I, I want to stay the night. I'm going to do a night here. And I talked to some of the doctors there about the treatments. And I was given a voucher for my dinner that evening. And I was put on a, on a communal table. And there's a poor young couple there who were about 18 and he'd been doing his military service up by the Afghan border and looked shell-shocked she looked like she'd made the worst decision of her life and then there's a sort of middle-class couple who spoke pretty good English who were from Dushanbe who were there for the weekend fine and they said make sure you see the concerts I said okay I love music so I made my way after dinner to this theatre hall and there was just this mind-blowingly weird psychedelic concert in the evening. There's no drinking, obviously, but everyone got up and started dancing. And the singer was blind. She was stood in a grey military coat and she had one child behind her on a Korg keyboard. But when she started singing, it was like the most powerful, you know, that sort of Bollywood power. Incredible, very sort of, um, I think she sung some Afghan songs and maybe some Iranian songs and some Tajik songs. And all the women got up and danced in one group and all the men got up and danced in another group. And it was just absolutely amazing. And the next day I left the Holy Mountain and went back to Dushanbe and just thought, my goodness, I, I read since that some people... You're on the heroin route in Tajikistan, and apparently some people go there to do cold turkey, which there's probably a book there. Um, <laughs> how on earth you'd survive that scenario. But there's nowhere else like it. I mean, there's nowhere... If, it, if it's still there in 100 years, it would be a miracle. Someone spent a lot of money on it, and it would take millions and millions. Could be kind of fantastic. Orchard trees, thrashing rivers. Tajikistan's the most beautiful country. And the people, not to generalise, are incredibly kind and incredibly welcoming and great fun, actually. Really interested in music, uh, lovely poetry. So, 
But there's a lot of that in the book. There's a lot of, uh, you know, music and storytelling and, and art. If we're, if we're kind of talking a bit about, it's not really art, but it is art in a way. But like your books are also amazingly beautiful. Covers are beautiful. The inside is beautiful. And there's Black Sea and Red Sands. So is there a theme about the colors? What's going on with the colors? Yeah, so um, I did Black Sea. Black Sea obviously speaks for itself. It's about the Black Sea region. And then I thought, I don't know, it's slightly, I'm slightly weird like this. I like themes. And so I was like, what can I peg Central Asia around? And I was like, the Kizilcum Desert, which means red sands in Turkic languages. And I remembered this amazing Chaikana-esque lunch I'd had in the Kizilcum Desert, which is very remote, where I'd had this perfect lunch where nothing was wasted. Shashlik, bread, green tea, some sliced onions. And I think I had a melon with me at the time as well, which I shared out. And that became the centre of the book. And then we sort of fan out. It's just in the introduction. And so very pretentiously, I decided, okay, it's a colour trilogy. So I'm going to do three of these books. So I've done Black Sea, Red Sands, and then another one, which I'm not allowed to talk about. It's way off in the future because travel's so difficult at the moment. Are we allowed to know what colour or we're not even allowed to know what colour? I cannot tell you that, oh, sorry. I'm very oh. sorry. No, because I'm worried it might give it away. <laughs> oh, no. I know, it's terrible. The frustration. Yeah, <laughs> but it will come one day. It'll okay. have to, because on the back of this book, it says, this is the second in the colour trilogy. So I'm absolutely locked into it. So it will come. Good. <laughs> I think making Good. a commitment. Yeah. That, that's the way to, you know, to make optimistic, sure it isn't it? Optimistic, it, you make a commitment. Yeah. I suppose you didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic when you made that commitment. Alas, not. But <laughs> fo- focuses the mind. I'm just curious as to this kind of like openness and almost thirst for another culture and another place. Mm. Where do you think you got it from? Like, where did you get the bug? I've only just started thinking about it recently, believe it or not, because it's just something I've always done for the last 20 years. I mean, I've always been away for a good chunk of the year in India, in Central Asia, in the Caucasus. And I think it's growing up in English suburbia. I had a, had a perfectly happy childhood. I lost my mum quite young, but until that, everything was fine. And we had very, very kind and nice neighbours. I grew up in a really multicultural part of Reading, which sounds very, um, people are surprised it's multicultural. It's really multicultural. Um, I had Turkish neighbours and Iranian neighbours that my parents were really good friends with. And trips for us were just to Spain once a year. And I would travel in these people's homes. So I'd play with the children during the day after school and stuff. And then in the evenings, I'd go there with my parents and they'd have wine and the Iranian family, who we were very close to, would cook my mum and dad these great lamb dishes. And the Turkish family, Elif and Eileen, I was friends with the girls, and her mum, Ermak, would always be cooking kofta and lentil dishes in the kitchen. I remember they had a ginormous portrait of Ataturk on horseback, which I was just completely fascinated by. I just remember this because I think Mah- he does a good portrait. Mahmoud, the husband, I yeah. think had been in the army. <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, if you're a young girl growing up in Reading and you don't travel very much, all of this is very interesting. And I remember my dad saying to me once, if you want to understand the world, you need to go out and meet interesting people. And I just remember thinking, okay, so you probably need to get out of Reading and out of suburbia. And the Iranians, actually, their daughters live with us for a while. And we've lost touch with them now, which is really heartbreaking. I'd love to try and reconnect with them one day. So I think that that was how it started. And 
I've got a pathological restlessness. I can't, yeah. I mean, I go mad sat in the same place for too long. Absolutely. I'm not much fun to be around, to be honest. Yeah. Well, we, we're very happy for you to continue traveling for <laughs> us and to write for us to read and, you know. Thank you. Well, I, and, and likewise, I hope you guys are going to be back out into the world too soon enough. Because, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. It's just what the world needs. <laughs> no, it absolutely does need it. Yeah. To us, we unleashed upon it. <laughs> yeah, we definitely help the, the country's GDP with the amount of food we tend to eat on these trips. So, you know. <laughs> I wanted to talk... You see, he's like, not going to stop. No, 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 I, I'm wrapping up, okay. I promise. In my head, we're just going to kind of like drill into every single page of the book and tell every single story because in a way it's good that we managed to keep some for people to read in case someone still doesn't have the book. They should do what I did and clear a weekend and just read it back oh, to back thank you. and be guaranteed an experience so rich and rewarding that... Yeah, I'm glad that we kept some stories yeah. back because there are so many tremendous ones there, Caroline. Thank you, Ismael. Well, it's from you. That's a great, great, great compliment. I don't know if it lives up to all that, but it's it's such a pleasure to it, write it. Really it really does, and also it really, really does. The best thing is that it gave me a complete 48 hours free of Itamal ah! talking <laughs> because he literally just died, dove into the book, didn't leave the bed or anything. It was amazing for me and for him. So that's perfect. I'll get cracking on the next one. Yeah, exactly. Get me the third one so that I can kind of relax again. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you in person again oh, very likewise. soon. Thank you so much for chatting to us again. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. for writing much. this beautiful oh, book. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for all your support over the years. It really means a lot. That is it for this episode of Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. Do join us for the rest of the autumn series. We'll be talking to chefs and writers from all over the world and from across food traditions. From New York, it's Jake Cohen. From Seattle, Renee Erickson. And from Copenhagen, Trina Henneman. Till London, Sami Tamimi and Tara Wigley. Chitna Makan will bring us a taste of Mumbai via Kent. Caroline Eden journeys through Central Asia. And we'll end on something sweet, as always, with pastry chef extraordinaire Ravnit Giri. Thank you to our producer Miranda Hinckley, to our engineers Paul Brogdon and John Scott, to Daniel Winshaw for writing the music, and thanks to Louisa Cornford, our Lulu, uh, for all the help she puts into the podcast, and to all our team at Honey & Co. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.